The 100th episode News Weekly will be live on January 19th, 7pm at the Comedy Republic in Melbourne. Tickets will be available soon. Patreon subscribers will get early access plus discounts. So become a subscriber by going to patreon.com slash Sammy Shah. That's S-A-M-I-S-H-A-H to support this podcast. Top Stories of the Week Israel-Gaza conflict reaches one month because time flies when you're screaming in horror. Also, Pakistan making Taliban look humane. All that and more on Newsweekly. Hello and welcome to News Weekly, where we punch the news in the headlines weekly. An eye for an eye makes the whole world go, oh my god, my eyes hurt, news now. The Israel-Hamas conflict is now over a month old, which makes it old enough for it to be killed in this conflict. Just a reminder for those exhausted by the daily horrors and death tolls, this began on October 7th, when Hamas attacked and killed an estimated 1,400 people and took approximately 240 hostages. It was an attack described by Joe Biden as equivalent to 15 9-11s. Since then, Israel has retaliated with a bombing campaign on Gaza that has seen over 10,000 Palestinians killed. No word yet on how many 9-11s that is because everyone's too busy using the phrase collateral damage. Of those approximately 10,000 killed, over 4,000 are confirmed as children, who the Israeli government says have only themselves to blame because they shouldn't have voted for Hamas in 2007 before they were born. Israel has defended the dropping of over 23,000 bombs to say it has killed over 60 Hamas leaders, which means that one Hamas leader is equal to about 66 Palestinian children, if you want to do the math there. Still, if you're Israel or its biggest ally, the United States, that kind of collateral damage is an unfortunate byproduct of war, which is what you hear John Kirby, the US National Security Council spokesperson, say here. That's what war is. It's brutal. It's ugly. It's messy. I've said that before. The president also said that yesterday. doesn't mean we have to like it. And it doesn't mean that we're dismissing any one of those casualties. He's being pragmatic, non-emotional, and extremely realistic about the cost of civilian lives in wartime. Something he couldn't be when those lives weren't Palestinian, but were Ukrainian instead. It's hard to look at what he's doing in Ukraine, what his forces are doing in Ukraine, and think that any um, uh, ethical, moral individual could justify that. It's difficult to look at the... Sorry. It's difficult to look at some of the images and imagine that any well-thinking serious, mature leader would do that. That's a man who has not looked at the images coming out of Gaza then. While Israel has refused to consider a five-day ceasefire in exchange for some of the hostages, saying it wants them all freed along with the unconditional surrender of Hamas first, it has agreed to a daily four-hour pause in hostilities, plus allowing Gazans to move through a humanitarian corridor. Now, what we've been reporting in the last half hour, those new lines coming out from the White House, uh, Israel agreeing to four-hour military pauses in northern Gaza, also information about two humanitarian corridors 
laws uh, to allow people to flee the hostilities. This comes after Israel has announced it has control over large portions of northern Gaza and has cleared out underground tunnels where Hamas fighters were hiding. Israel's vast military might on display once again. It says Hamas has lost control in northern Gaza and its troops are battling inside Gaza City. This is a critical point in the war. And for the first time, the BBC was given access behind Israeli lines in Gaza, escorted by soldiers. While the BBC had editorial control of the report, these pictures were cleared for use by the Israeli military. We know intelligence. We know what we hit. We know the targets. They're approved by, the, by our command. It's not that I wake up and uh, my, my objective is to, to ruin the, the city. I aim for enemy, an enemy only. That claim might not be one Israel makes too proudly, given how many Palestinian journalists have seen their homes and families targeted. According to the Committee to Protect Journalists, the war on Gaza has quickly become the deadliest conflict for journalists since the 1990s. Meanwhile, Israeli politicians are denouncing unbiased journalism as evidence of bias. If the international media is objective, it serves Hamas. If it just shows both sides, it serves Hamas. My argument is that the media can't just claim to bring both sides of the story. If you do that, you are only bringing one, Hamas's side. That's cowardly and that's, it's lazy. It's an insult, insult to the victims, including the Palestinian victims. That's former journalist and leader of the Israeli opposition, Yair Lipid, often seen as a centrist. He's also justified ongoing settlements in the West Bank by saying, quote, this is our historical biblical land, end quote, so the centre seems situated pretty far towards the right. Still, for Israel, the evidence that Hamas has indeed been hiding weapons in public places like beneath a child's room is important in highlighting why the attack on Hamas has resulted in so many hospitals, ambulances and refugee shelters being bombed. The argument it raises is that Hamas is using human shields, which means Israel has no choice here. Something addressed by London's LBC with host James O'Brien and this caller. Do you think that if Hamas was hiding in Israel the Israeli army would be pursuing the same tactics in pursuit of them with regard to civilian life? No, I don't. Well, there it is. While the humanitarian corridor and pauses in bombing will provide some much-needed respite to Palestinians, there is some paranoia that this will result in more Palestinians losing their homes and land to Israeli occupation, fears that aren't helped by Netanyahu saying things like this. Israel will, for uh, an indefinite period, will have the overall... Uh, security responsibility. This means Netanyahu plans to effectively occupy Gaza completely for an indefinite period, long after the bombing and bloodshed is done. That, to me, is a massive error of judgment. That's Piers Morgan, who, in further evidence that we're living in the end times, has provided some shockingly even-handed analysis of the entire conflict so far, consistently condemning Hamas and the anti-Semitism, while also questioning the size and scale of Israel's response and frequently interviewing people he disagrees with and allowing them space to make their arguments. It's fucking insane, I tell you. For Netanyahu, this attack has provided a distraction from the ongoing protests against him and his government, which might explain why he's going so hard with the borderline genocidal hints. You must remember what Amalek has done to you, says our Holy Bible, and we do remember and we are fighting. 
That's a Netanyahu referencing an Old Testament commandment for Israelites to kill men, women and children of an enemy. It's the kind of appeal to old-school holy war that leaders who know their entire political future hinges on voters, seeing them as holy warriors, rely on. This crusade, this war on terrorism, uh, is going to take a while. That was, of course, George W. Bush in 2001, responding to the original 9-11. And, of course, because where there's biblical invocations and posturing, Scott Morrison has to respond like it's the fucking bat signal. Former Prime Minister Scott Morrison has landed in Israel as the first Australian politician to visit the country since the Hamas terrorist attack. Mr Morrison and former British Prime Minister Boris Johnson will meet with Israel's president. Meanwhile, Morrison has appointed himself Israel's new defence minister. For Israel, this has now become not just a war against Hamas, but also a war against rising anti-Israel sentiment as the death toll continues to rocket so high, Israel can basically shoot it out of space, which you have to admit was a cool goddamn thing that happened. So while Hamas leadership continues to live in luxury in Qatar while making pronouncements about more attacks on Israel and offering up a few hostages in videos that look like they were filmed by Osama bin Laden's cameraman, the victims of this war continue to see no reprieve, be those the families of the Israeli hostages, the hostages themselves, or the Gazan civilians. And because nothing gives assholes and racists a carte blanche like a crisis in the Middle East, around the world there's been a marked increase in both anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. From Canada... Police in several cities report a rise in alleged hate incidents and hate crimes against both Jewish and Muslim communities since the Israel-Hamas war began. In the last month, nearly 100 in Montreal alone. Three quarters were against the Jewish community. That's compared to a total of 72 hate crimes or incidents for all of last year in the city. To the UK. Well, the government is writing to universities in England for the second time in the last few weeks, warning them that not enough is being done to stop the rise of anti-Semitic incidents on campuses. America. As the FBI has noted, we are seeing an increase in reported threats against faith communities, particularly Jewish Muslim and Arab communities and institutions. And of course, Australia. Australian store chain Kmart has pulled a festive gift from its website after a complaint from a Jewish group. The Christmas food-themed bag featured the pun Hamas in large lettering. The Australian Jewish Association said it had politely suggested it be removed from sale because of the unintentional likeness to Hamas. The AJA committee said although this is potentially funny, it's not really a good look. A West Farmers spokesperson apologised and said we got it wrong on this occasion and we apologise unreservedly. The irony being of course that nothing would offend Hamas more than being associated with ham. The biggest incidents of inter-community violence took place on Friday night when pro-Palestine supporters gathered in Caulfield, a heavily Jewish suburb, ostensibly to protest the burning down of a Palestinian-owned restaurant which had been receiving threats prior. However, the owner of the restaurant, Hash Taye, had asked that no one protest in front of his shop as he doesn't want any violence to occur. At the end of the day, I don't advocate violence. All I want is peace and... The perpetrators of whoever did burn our store down, the police will find them. I'm confident of that. So please, if you're planning on protesting tonight in Caulfield, I would suggest that you don't. No benefit will come from it. 
So, of course, protesters didn't gather in front of his shop, instead moving one kilometre up the road to stand right outside a synagogue. And, of course, that resulted in Israel supporters gathering on the other side, and both sides then had a reasonable conversation where they each saw the other's point of view and dispersed calmly. No? Yeah, the cops had to break up the violence with tear gas and arrests, and the Jewish community in Melbourne now feels even more targeted. Luckily, Australian news media is here to calm things down and not throw any generalizations around by questioning the allegiances of Palestinian families returning from a war zone. Before our intelligence and security agencies have conducted checks to ensure that they have no Hamas affiliations. Anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, a war in the Middle East that is likely to continue with more civilian casualties, continued radicalization, and every politician in every major country even marginally connected to the region using it to advance their own agendas, everyone positive that their side is the righteous one while the other side clearly committed to evil, the word genocide being thrown about with casual abandon. Boy, I miss COVID. Are we seriously making the Taliban sound reasonable? News now. If there's an opportunity to choose to be on the wrong side of history, the Pakistan government can be relied to be on that side. Its most recent commitment to that lifestyle choice is expelling millions of Afghan refugees from Pakistan back into Afghanistan. Pakistan says it started to arrest Afghans as the country begins a nationwide crackdown on foreign nationals it says are in the country illegally. Many millions have fled from Afghanistan to Pakistan over the years most recently to escape the Taliban takeover in 2021. Well, the Pakistan government says it's following its own rules, but human rights groups like Amnesty International have criticised the policy, which they say leaves some vulnerable groups in grave danger. Those vulnerable groups are basically all women and any men who didn't support the Taliban. Okay, so some context. Pakistan has about 4 million Afghan refugees, of which 1.4 million are said to be undocumented. For those 4 million refugees, there is no legal pathway to citizenship, even though many have been in Pakistan since the early 1980s and are now into their second and third generations. Many of them have set up businesses, which are now being hurriedly sold, with Pakistani buyers taking advantage of the fact that the government won't allow any Afghans to take more than the equivalent of $175 back with them. By the way, a lot of those refugees are also in Pakistan because they were fleeing the Taliban, which Pakistan has continually supported. But the ABC has spoken to two women who've gone into hiding. They worked for international NGOs in Afghanistan and fled after the Taliban takeover. Please, please do not send us back because it is very dangerous for us. It, it was not easy for us to leave our family. And if that doesn't demonstrate a near cartoonish commitment to villainy... As part of the crackdown, authorities are going door to door to find migrants and bulldozing their houses. So why is the Pakistan government doing this? Here's Indian journalist Palki Sharma giving an analysis I have to grudgingly agree with. Because they're a convenient group to blame. You see, Pakistan is suffering at the hands of terrorists it nurtured. In the last one year, Pakistan has had 24 suicide bombings. 14 of them were linked to the TTP, the tehreek e taliban Pakistan, TTP, also known as the Pakistani Taliban. And the name itself is telling. Pakistan played a crucial role in raising the Taliban, especially in the early 2000s, during the US occupation of Afghanistan. That's when Pakistan gave refuge to the Taliban. 
And the TTP is a byproduct of that relationship. The TTP was born in Pakistan, its leaders were trained in Pakistan, and now the same group is attacking Pakistan. Like I said, it's Islamabad's own doing. But instead of eradicating terrorism, it is targeting refugees, using them as a bargaining chip. And here's the deal. If Kabul reigns in the TTP, Islamabad will not threaten to displace Afghan refugees. And what does the Taliban have to say? Well, last year they did try to mediate. They brokered talks between Pakistan and the TTP. This led to a ceasefire, but it lasted only for five months. The expulsion is likely to create such a large humanitarian crisis that Taliban have called it inhumane. How bad do you have to be for the Taliban to consider you inhumane? It looks like Pakistan intends to keep finding out. I actually enjoyed the lack of phone and internet for a few hours. News now. Optus is one of Australia's two major telecom providers, with a large amount of national services relying on it for communication, along with millions of customers using it for phone and internet access. Which is why Optus was so embarrassed earlier this year when hackers stole the personal data of millions of its customer base. However, Optus can now relax about everyone still being upset over that data breach because it fucked things up much, much worse. Good evening. For a company that's whole business is based on technology, today has been an unmitigated disaster for Optus as it suffered an outage of its services right across the country from the early hours of the morning. It is Australia's biggest such shutdown of internet and phone communication, leaving 10 million customers cut off from friends and family, thousands of businesses crippled and emergency services thrown into chaos. In Optus's defence, its service is usually so shit that it took most people a while to even notice. I am with Optus and I live in a fairly heavily suburban and central part of Melbourne and most of my house has almost no reception, so I just thought it was just another normal day at first. The scale of the outage affected much more than just my ability to send my friends memes on Instagram while streaming a YouTube video on sourdough starters, however. It caused chaos nationwide, freezing the entire Melbourne train network. And so I tried to get an Uber and it cancelled four times. Uber drivers and cabbies struggled to take payments and use apps. Drivers not able to receive those jobs in their vehicles uh, through the outage in the dispatch systems. It knocked out the Virgin Australia call centre. Phones at private hospitals run by Ramsey Healthcare went dead. The Poisons Information Hotline and Service New South Wales lines were down as well. The Poisons Information Hotline was down? Do you know how many animals can kill you with a single bite here in Australia? That hotline needs to have more backup options and redundancies in the Prime Minister's office. So while the nation sat alone with its thoughts for the first time since the invention of the modem, many turned to the Optus CEO, Kelly Bayer Rosemarin, for answers, only to have the exact same experience as anyone who's ever tried using an Optus helpline. We're still waiting to hear back from Optus. We are still waiting for a response from Optus. No significant word from Optus at this point. The CEO finally appeared several hours after the outage began, providing an excuse that confirms she uses Telstra herself. Why were you missing in action this morning? Actually, we've had messages out from the beginning. We have messages on our website. Yeah, but people have got no internet, so they can't access the information. Optus has vowed to ensure this doesn't happen again, even though it's still not sure why it happened in the first place, which means it'll probably have to do something even worse to distract us from all of this. 
That's it from this week's edition of News Weekly. Thank you so much for putting up with the two weeks that I took off. News Weekly is back now on a regular schedule. Basically all the way up until we hit the 100th episode, which is going to be the live episode. Tickets, like I said, will be available very, very soon. In the meantime, head over to iTunes and give me a five-star rating and a good review if you are so inclined. Otherwise, I will see you right back here on News Weekly, where we punch the news in the headlines weekly.